From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Just a week after Dr. King was killed, I walked home to get ready for the Seder. And it meant walking past the Jeep with a machine gun pointed at the block I lived on. And my guts, more than my brain, began to say, this is Pharaoh's army on the streets, and you're going home to celebrate the Seder. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Rabbi Arthur Oshinwasco. He's the founder and director of the Shalom Center, a prophetic voice in American life that brings Jewish and other spiritual thought and practice to bear on seeking peace, pursuing justice, healing the earth, and celebrating community. He's taken a vigorous part in public advocacy and nonviolent protest on behalf of peace, civil rights, full equality for women and gay people, freedom for Soviet Jewry, and healing for the wounded earth. Today we're talking about his recent book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, The Coming Transformation of Religion. Rabbi Arthur Ocean Wasco, welcome to Things Not Seen. Well, thank you, and shalom to you and to all your listeners. Shalom to you as well. I want to start the conversation with a pivotal moment that you talk about in your book, Dancing in God's Earthquake. It happens in 1968, between the assassination of Martin Luther King and the beginning of the Passover Seder. And this was a pivotal moment for you. And I wonder if you're willing to take my listeners back to that moment to help us understand how this helped to frame your future thinking on a lot of these subjects. Sure. It was a pivotal moment in my life. I had been active in the civil rights movement, uh, so-called the friend of mine now passed, uh, called it rather, the Black-led Southern Movement for Expanding American Democracy, which was quite accurate. So I'd been active in it, had met Dr. King an amazing night uh, in Atlantic City at the Democratic National Convention in 1964, when the Freedom Democrats from Mississippi were appealing to be recognized as the real Democratic Party of Mississippi. And Dr. King spent a huge hunk of that night exhausted and with a very badly sprained ankle. He was using crutches, not charismatic, but painfully talking to hard-bitten politicians from the North, mostly trying to explain to them what Mississippi was really like in order to get 10 votes that would go to the floor with the uh, proposal from the Freedom Democrats. So I've been involved in that and gotten arrested a couple of times around civil rights issues. And I was stunned and horrified by 
the murder of Dr. King. I was invited to speak in his memory at a gathering at American University on the edge of the District of Columbia the next morning. And I did. And what I said was that Dr. King would not be just remembering. He would be acting. And he would be acting to nonviolently demand an end to the violence of the Vietnam War. And I asked if anybody else would be interested in joining in a march to the White House to do that. And about 35 or so people did. And we went to a long part of the way to DuPont Circle in Washington and paused to get some water and so on. And somebody asked us what we were doing, and I explained. And he looked at me as if I were crazy and said, don't you know what's going on? And he pointed to the sky, and there were clouds of smoke emerging from the, some of the major business streets in downtown Washington. There was already a black uprising in despair and rage about the killing of Dr. King. And we consulted and decided to keep going. We did. And we went to the White House. And when we lined up on the White House side of Pennsylvania Avenue, there were police and they, without warning, they attacked and arrested us. So that was the beginning of that week. Hard to put an adjective to what week it was. There had been a group of us who were quite aware that Washington was on the verge of an explosion. You could taste it on the streets for months. And it usually happened in July or August. That's what we expected. But here it was April and the city exploded. And we had prepared what we called the Center for Emergency Support to get food and doctors and lawyers into the Black community. President Johnson imposed a curfew on the city and sent the army to occupy the capital city of the United States. And they did. They took over schools. They took over the traffic circles. And we were able, because the police didn't really care if white folks were on the streets, there were thousands of black folks arrested just for violating the curfew, not doing anything destructive, but just being on the streets. But they didn't care about us. So we were able to do for the next week what we had set out to do to make sure that the Black community was not totally cut off from the rest of the world. And we got doctors and lawyers and medical supplies and so on into the community. A week from Dr. King's death came the first night that year of Passover. I learned years later that he was planning to spend that night of the Passover Seder, the sacred meal that remembers the liberation of ancient Jews from an ancient pharaoh in Egypt, that he was planning to spend that night for his first ever Passover Seder at the home of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who stood with him 
in many struggles, both over civil rights and over the Vietnam War. So that Seder was the only piece of serious Jewish practice that I kept as a grown-up. I thought most of the tradition didn't make sense. I had a, became a bar mitzvah when they ignored everything serious about the Torah, the tradition, and just made sure I knew how to chant it. And I thought that was ridiculous, so I stopped. Except for the Seder, because that was about justice and freedom. And so I walked home just a week after Dr. King was killed. I walked home to get ready for the Seder. And that meant walking past the army. And it meant walking past a jeep with a machine gun pointed at the block I lived on. And my insides, my guts, my kishkas, we would say in Yiddish, more than my brain began to say, this is Pharaoh's army on the streets and you're going home to celebrate the Seder and the overthrow of Pharaoh. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Rabbi Arthur Ocean Wasco. We're talking about his recent book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, The Coming Transformation of Religion. Well, Rabbi Wasco, you just gave us this image of walking home to the Seder, seeing this jeep with the machine gun on it, thinking, this is Pharaoh's army, and you're going to pray the prayers about the overthrow of Pharaoh. That must have been a powerful moment. You said that you weren't a keeper of the traditions other than the Seder at that point, the Passover, but you have since become a rabbi. So something shifted for you in that, and you began to return to the movements of Judaism. Is that a fair assessment, or would you say it in a different way? Well, absolutely. And that night was the great shift. There's a line in the traditional Haggadah, the telling of the story, that says in every generation, every human being, it doesn't say every Jew, called Adam, every human being, must look upon himself, herself, as if we go forth from slavery to freedom. And I had read that line ever since I was old enough to read, but it never meant anything. But that night, it meant everything. It felt as if the Seder was on the streets and the streets were in the Seder. And so I paid attention in a way I never had. I'd always taken the Seder seriously, but the Seder felt like a a volcano exploding that I hadn't even known was there. And I drew out of that a sense of being taken into the tradition in a way that I couldn't escape. That fall, I sat down with two piles of information in front of me. One was the traditional Haggadah, the story of the the telling of the story of the exodus from Egypt. In one hand, a copy I'd been given when I became Bar Mitzvah at 13. And in the other hand, Dr. King, that is his teachings, Gandhi, stories of the slave revolts of the 1840s and the ghetto, the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt of 1942, in the other hand, and I wove what was in my left hand into the 
traditional Haggadah. I wove an argument between violence and nonviolence as a way to get liberation. So John Brown was in there too, and Thoreau talking about John Brown. So that was the turning point of my life. And the writing that I did, bringing that modern, mostly modern, and maybe a century or two old resistance to racism as a parallel to the 3,000-year-old resistance to Pharaoh, which was also racism, among other things, really turned my head. I found myself drawn more and more and more to learning what this tradition meant. I discovered how possible it was to take a verse from the ancient text, give it a twirl, and that was called Midrash, the rewriting of the white spaces in the Torah. The rabbis wrote that the Torah wasn't written in black ink on white parchment. It was written in black fire on white fire. And you needed to learn to read the white fire too, that is the blank parts, that is not so blank. Uh, and that was Midrash. And I began to do that. And this book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, is like a summing up for me and going beyond where I've been before to do Midrash, looking toward the future of religion, of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, other traditions. What do they mean? We are undergoing an earthquake of many, many, many dimensions, social earthquake of all sorts of things in our lives. In the last six months, we've lived through at least five social earthquakes that I hadn't even written about explicitly in the book because the book was finished about six or seven months ago. But that's what the book is about, the future of religion when the earthquakes shatter the old assumptions. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Rabbi Arthur Ocean Wasco. He's the founder and director of the Shalom Center, a prophetic voice in American life that brings Jewish and other spiritual thought and practice to bear on seeking peace, pursuing justice, and healing the earth, celebrating community. He's taken a vigorous part in public advocacy and nonviolent protest on behalf of peace, civil rights, full equality for women and gay people, freedom for Soviet Jewry, and healing of the wounded earth. Rabbi Wasco is the author of many books, including The Original Freedom Seder, also God Wrestling Round 2, and Seasons of Our Joy, a book that I actually used in graduate school. In 2014, he was honored by Trua, the rabbinic call for human rights, with their first Lifetime Achievement Award as a human rights hero. He lives in Philadelphia with his life partner, wife, and co-author and co-teacher, Rabbi Phyllis Ocean Berman. We're talking today about his recent book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, The Coming Transformation of Religion. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. 
It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying our conversations, please do go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, where you can find our entire back catalog of episodes, all for free and all for your enjoyment. We're speaking today with Rabbi Arthur Ocean Wasco. He is a founder and director of the Shalom Center, and he's been a prophetic voice in American life that has helped to bring Jewish and other spiritual thought and practice to bear on seeking peace, pursuing justice, and healing the earth. Today we're talking about his recent book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, The Coming Transformation of Religion. Well, some years ago, before she passed away, I had the chance to get to know Phyllis Tickle. And one of the things that Phyllis Tickle, who was a writer about religion, mostly from the Christian tradition, one of the things that she said was that every 500 years, religions kind of undergo a major upheaval. Sometimes she called it a rummage sale. And she said that uh, that when these upheavals would happen, and she said, well, it, it happened around the time of 500 when the when the Talmud was was assembled. It happened around the Great Schism at 1000. It happened around 1500 with the Reformation. And she said, this is not just Christianity. This is all the religions. And she said, now in the 2000s, we're we're ripe for another revitalization, another rummage sale of religion. When I was reading your book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, I felt that same thing. I felt like you were saying, listen, I'm not just talking about Judaism, I'm talking about Islam, I'm talking about Christianity, you're talking about a major reassessment of the core truths of all of these religious traditions in order that we might begin to do tikkun olam, to heal the earth. Now, when I say this and I sum this up and I bring up Phyllis Tickle, are you hearing in this what you intended in the book, or am I off base? Am I missing the mark? No, you're absolutely right. In Jewish life, you might say this happened at the collapse of the of biblical Judaism, when Rome basically destroyed not only militarily and physically, but uh, destroying the temple, for example, but the whole economy and philosophy of ancient biblical Judaism. And it took about 200 years for things to settle out. Some Jews became followers of Jesus and created a new religion called Christianity. Some became Hellenists because it seemed Rome was so successful. Some even tried doing the temple sacrifices somewhere else. But the major, for most Jews, the result was rabbinic Judaism and an enormous upheaval in what religion was about. It wasn't about bringing God food from the land, which became unavailable. Jews were severed from the earth, but it became about words, about words of Midrash, words of prayer, an enormous change. And we're at a moment like that with Judaism, and I think every one of the traditions 
modernity has done what Rome did then, and only it's done it globally. We're all in that soup. It's now affected so deeply the planet that has really become a life and death thing for the entire human race, as well as for many, many species on Earth. Let me see if I've heard you correctly. So around the time when Judaism became what we now know as rabbinic Judaism, the temple got knocked down. The Romans came and knocked it down and, as you say, sort of scattered the Jewish economy. And so there was no longer the possibility of doing sacrificial worship at the temple. And so the entirety of Judaism had to rethink its practice. It had to shift, as you said, from feeding God in the temple to using words of Midrash and words of prayer. This upheaval, it's a revolution. It's it's a radical rethinking of the ways in which the basic mechanisms of Judaism worked. I mean, if you were to say to a Kohen, to a priest, in the temple that in a generation or two they would not have a temple and they would be instead just singing prayers, the priest would have thought that the person was crazy. And what I hear you saying is that we're at a similar point now where everything that we've inherited, not just in Judaism but in these other traditions, we're going to have to rethink with the same kind of radical upheaval of moving from the physicality of the temple to the spirituality of prayer. We're going to have to do something like that again. Help me and my listeners understand what this is going to look like. Do you even no. <laughs> well, it may take another hundred years for us to be sure, but what I tried to write in the book was some effort at imagining what that might look like. So, for example, it's pretty clear that the quality of women, which seemed to be anathema to not only ancient Judaism, but rabbinic Judaism as well, is going to be and by the way, in many Christian traditions, it was anathema as well. But the equality of women is clearly going to be a dominant note or a non-dominant, <laughs> the powerful note in the future of religion generally. Not only that, but I think the increasing openness of religious life to women has raised some basic questions about the whole nature of gender and sexuality altogether. So I think that the revolution about women has also brought a rethinking of the ancient prohibitions on male homosexuality. And that has gone very far, at least in American society. And we have begun to see the serious emergence of people who say, wait a minute, dividing the world between male and female just doesn't work. Some of us are beyond the binary. And that raises some profound questions. What does it mean to be beyond the binary in religious traditions that have defined themselves by binaries, not only binaries about sex and gender, but binaries about everything? What does that mean? What does it mean to face the ancient biblical affirmation of some genocides when it was the people of Israel who were doing them at the same time that they resisted with utter nonviolent vigor the genocide attempted by Pharaoh. How do we deal with that? Why do we want to still read the story of Moses carrying out, ordering, and then carrying out a genocide of the Midianites. 
I think because it's important for us to read because it's a warning to all of us, every people, that no people is immune to the impulse toward genocide. And if we read about it in our own and feel disgusted and horrified, that's of a useful teaching to remind us to look around and make sure that we're not moving in a direction that would end up with genocide. There are ways in which what seems to have been treated as heroic, as a blessing, are now seen as the opposite of blessings, as disasters. And we need to keep our eyes open to look at that. You mentioned the difference between body and word in moving from biblical to rabbinic Judaism. One of my concerns, and I'm beginning to see it happening, is the new integration of body and word. Biblical Judaism was all about the body. Food was how you got in touch with God. And the priests who offered the food were chosen by their bodies. They were chosen hereditarily. If they had a bodily so-called defect, they couldn't serve. All that went, and the word being an adept at using words was what became the central element of rabbinic Judaism. Well, what does it mean today for us to look at dance as a form of prayer, to look at meditation and the stillness of the body as a form of prayer? What does it mean even for us to re-examine the names and the attributes that we assign to God, King and Lord? And I look back at that ancient name in the Western alphabet, it's Y-H-W-H, and it didn't have any vowels, so it's not Yehovah and it's not Yahweh. It's just Y-H-W-H with no vowels. And once at a moment of internal transformation for me, I tried pronouncing it, and what came out was a breath. And I thought, oh, wow. Now that's a good way of understanding God, the breath. First of all, the breath is the only thing that appears in every human language. Different names of God in different languages. But the breath is in every language, and it's the only thing that is. And secondly, it's not just human beings. The whole planet breathes. And we don't just breathe in a little bubble all by ourselves, but the animals, including human beings, breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. The vegetation breathes in carbon dioxide and breathes out oxygen. It's that whole interbreathing that keeps the earth alive. And seeing God as the interbreathing spirit of the world. The word spiritus in Latin means breath, actually. In Hebrew, ruach, the word for breath, wind, is also the word for spirit. This was one of the things that struck me so much about your book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, is 
as you're making these moves and talking about the interbreathing of all the different life forms on this planet, this really is the undergirding of what you say at several points in the book. This next revolution that we're talking about, this next going back to the roots in all of these religions, is not going to be so much theological as it needs to be ecological. It needs to be aware of the fact that we are living beings who are sharing this planet together. I'd love to hear more about that kind of ecological move that you're seeing as the necessity for the next great awakening, the next great revolution in thought in world religions. Well, I think there's some teaching that points in that direction. I've been enthralled by the way in which both rabbinic Judaism and Christianity dealt with the Torah saying that Human beings are made in God's image. There's this wonderful teaching by the rabbis. Somebody says, what does that mean to be in God's image? And another one of the rabbis, remember, they're all living under the Roman Empire, says when Caesar puts his image on a coin, all the coins come out identical. When the Holy One, who is beyond all rulers, puts the divine image on a coin, meaning a human being, all the coins come out unique and different. And then there's the story in three of the Gospels where some conservative Pharisees stop Jesus, who's a radical Pharisee, and says, should we pay taxes with this coin to the Roman Empire? And he says, whose image is on the coin? He clearly knows this teaching of the rabbis. Whose image is on the coin? They say, Caesar's image. And then, according to the written story, he says, so give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. But I think there's a left out line. Either he didn't need to say it or it got censored out on behalf of the Roman Empire later when it became Christian. I think what he did then was to put his hand on the shoulder of one of the people who were trying to make trouble for him and said, and whose image is on this coin, meaning the human being's own self. And they went away ashamed because he had taught the lesson so powerfully. Give to Caesar what Caesar's, what does it matter? Give to God what matters, a human being, every human being, different from all the others. What's so profound about that for me is so often when we look at large religious institutions or large institutions generally, they tend to exist for the preservation of the institution at the expense of the human. And what I'm hearing you saying is we need all of our institutions to go back to their texts and to recover a focus on and intentionality about the human and preserving the human and cherishing the human that we see in front of us. Am I hearing that correctly in what you're saying? Yes. And in fact, I asked my grandchild, when she was eight years old, what she thought the being in God's image meant. And by the way, 10 years later, she's beyond the binary and is they, not she. So I'll try to use they. So I asked them at eight, what is this business about human beings being made in God's image? And 
They said, what's an image? An eight-year-old question. And I said, well, like a photograph. And they said, like a photograph? That's really strange. God is invisible. How could there be a photograph? I didn't say a word for the rest of this conversation. It all took place in their head and heart. And then they said, well, it could be the other way around. Maybe God is in the image of human beings. But that wasn't satisfying either. And they thought a while and said, well, we're all different from each other. Notice the echo of what the rabbis thought that they didn't know when they were eight years old. But we're all different from each other. So it couldn't be just one of us who makes the photograph for God. So what then? And they thought a while more. And then their face lit up. And they said, maybe we're different from each other the way the pieces in my jigsaw puzzle are different from each other. And you've got to fit us together. And if you fit us together, we make a community. And a community is more like God. So that's an eco. I didn't know that jigsaw puzzles were an ecological game, but they are. The importance of an ecosystem is that each member of the ecosystem is different from all the others. If they were identical, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be an ecosystem. Everybody would die. With an ecosystem, the differences make a whole. The differences make one. And they're crucial. The differences are crucial and the oneness is crucial. And I think that's what an ecological religion would be teaching, is that it's not a matter of domination by a king, a lord, a president, a prime minister, or whatever, a boss. It's the process of seeing how unique we all are and how we meet each other's needs and each other's desires and each other's celebrations that makes for a real community and a real religious life. Something that strikes me about that story that comes up several times in your book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, is this exchange between you and a member of your family that you walk away from changing your thinking about a fundamental aspect of your inherited tradition. You relate a story in the book where you're at the Freedom Seder and you have a passage that your daughter is reading and she chooses to read feminine names for God and feminine pronouns for God instead of male. And there's an eruption from a table of young men, and your father says she has the passage, she can read it as she pleases. To me, the willingness to be open to that new teaching, that willingness to have Midrash happen before your eyes, even by those who occasionally have been left out by the tradition, <laughs> of those who are, who are not on the gender binary, those who are identified as women who have oftentimes been rejected from being teachers. To me, this was a profound, beautiful lesson of your book, that even in the midst of being a person who carries forward this tradition, you were so willing to listen to the live voices engaging with that tradition. One of the great lines of the rabbis was, is, from my teachers, I learned a great deal. 
From my comrades, I learned even more. From my students, I learned most of all. And I've, I've discovered it's true. I can't even say it without coming to tears. The moments when somebody who is presumably younger, unknowledgeable, a student, even gaining knowledge, but not presumably fully knowledgeable, has changed what I think has and pointed to the future. That's been amazing for me. And I welcome it every time it happens. Sir, that was beautiful. And I, I want to give you a moment. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Rabbi Arthur Ocean Wasco. We're talking about his recent book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, The Coming Transformation of Religion. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying our conversations, please do go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, where you can find the entirety of our back catalog available for free. Our guest today is Rabbi Arthur Ocean Wasco. He is founder and director of the Shalom Center and has been a prophetic voice in American life that has helped to bring together Jewish and other spiritual thought and practice to bear on seeking peace, pursuing justice, and healing the earth. Today we're talking about his recent book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, The Coming Transformation of Religion. Well, in my other life as a professor, I occasionally have the opportunity to teach Christian spirituality. And at one point, a couple of years ago, we were going through the classic texts of Western spirituality. We were looking at a variety of thinkers through the centuries. And one thing that we noticed was they kept coming back to one particular biblical text, the Song of Songs. And we found ourselves Christians asking each other, why do they keep referencing the Song of Songs? And one of the things that that I really benefited from in reading your book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, is I began to get an answer about why the Song of Songs was so important to the Christian mystical tradition. It's because it's central to the rabbinic tradition as well, and I would love for my listeners to hear more about how the rabbis reclaimed the Song of Songs from the nightclubs, basically. Right, right. Well, there was a crucial moment in the gathering of the Sanhedrin, which was a combination legislative judicial body in which the head of the Sanhedrin insulted one of the rabbis who disagreed with him, told him to stand in a corner, literally. And the rabbis were taken aback and they began chanting, resign, resign. And the chair resigned. And that day became an amazing day. The Talmud says that whenever we say that day, that's the day we're talking about. One of the issues they discussed 
was whether to recognize the Song of Songs as sacred. There had been a big debate about it, and a lot of people thought it wasn't sacred at all. The name of God never appears in it. It seems to be about sex and bodily beauty, and earth is not an object to be conquered, but a partner to be enjoyed and to enjoy. And I mean joy. So in this meeting of the Sanhedrin, one of the great rabbis, Akiba, says, well, wait a minute. First of all, the song is as deep and sacred as the day in which everything else was created. Wow. Then he says, it's sacred exactly because the name of God never appears in it. And I, thinking about that, began to get that the Song of Songs is like the Garden of Eden for grown-ups. If the Garden of Eden was about first being children, then being, I mean, the human race, being children fed and no problem, and they may be naked, but there's no sex, and they're not worried about it. And they grow up into an adolescent rebellion, which is important for them to grow up in, but they pick a way of rebelling that turned out to make enormous trouble. They pick eating from a tree that the voice of reality and says, don't eat from that tree. So they gobbled up everything, abundance, instead of having some self-restraint. That's been a recurrent problem. I think that that's the real sin of Eden. There's no self-restraint in dealing with the earth. And the Torah and the Hebrew Bible and rabbinic Judaism keep struggling with how to grow up without ruining the earth, a question we're absolutely facing right now. So if the Song of Songs is Eden for grown-ups, then God doesn't need to be there telling everybody what to do, Mama, Papa, God. In fact, the ethic of love has been integrated inside people. So you don't need to have even Yudhe the breath of life, telling people what to do. And that's one of the things that makes it sacred. Another thing was that it does honor the body of human beings and the body of earth. And it's not only about words, it's brilliant poetry, but the poetry is about body. And I think Akiba understood that too. And he said that all the writings were holy, but the Song of Songs was the holy of holies. And then, even then, the Sanhedrin tried to divide the erotic from the spiritual and the body from the word by saying that, well, it really was about the love affair between God and Israel. Christianity says it's the love affair between Jesus and the church. And they separated it in a very intriguing way. They passed at the same time that they said the Song of Songs is sacred. It belongs in what we now call the Bible. At the same time, they said, and it should not any longer be chanted in houses of wine, which I think are nightclubs. And I keep imagining Eartha Kitt, torch singer, singing uh, passages from the Song of Songs in a nightclub. They said, no, erotic and spirit cannot be 
in the same world. And that was a big mistake. But at least the Kiba one that we paid attention for the last couple of thousand years to the Song of Songs, I think now in our own generation, new translations, which are much more honest to the original, and many of them by women, by Shefa Gold, a modern Jewish chanter, by uh, the Bloch, uh, the Blochs, uh, by Marsha Falk, a poet, women translating the Song of Songs, unheard of. And it's getting the energy of what's been buried in it, not abandoning the spirit, but honoring Eros and the body at the same time as the spirit, reconnecting them. So I think that's, that is what makes it Eden for a grown-up human race. And it's the wistful wish of, I think, the Bible and of rabbinic Judaism and Christianity and Islam. It's the wistful wish of all of them to make a world like that. It says, love is strong as death, the song says. Love is strong as death. And we're at the moment where love had better be even stronger than death because we're at the point where the earth is being tormented to the edge of death by human misbehavior. Well, in this example that you've just given of the rabbis reconsidering the Song of Songs, I find echoes of that in your own practice with these texts all through your book, Dancing in God's Earthquake. You go back to stories that I thought that I knew well, Cain and Abel, the Garden of Eden, and you reread them. And in rereading them, you opened them up for me. So talk to my listeners a little bit about this practice of going back and rereading texts in ways that may be surprising to those that have grown up with these stories? Well, it's about what I said. The white uh, spaces are not empty and blank. They're white fire, and you just have to read them. What that means is that you watch for what comes to you as the richness of the text. And the rabbis did it, and Christianity did it. Though sometimes our traditions say, oh, it was done. Don't do it again, ever because that will shake everything up, and it does shake everything up. To do it again in the midst of earthquakes, when the text itself begins to quake and shake and take on new meaning, all I can say, I think about it, is read this story and ask yourself, what in my own life is this story talking about? My own life, not 2,000 years ago or three thousand years ago, or even 500 years ago. But what in my own life am I hearing the story saying? What do I hear those stories about the brothers and one pair of sisters in the book of Genesis? What does that say to me as I think about my own life with my own siblings? What does it say to me about women and men? What does it say to me about whites and blacks, where the less powerful party over and over again in those stories of the brothers, the less powerful party becomes the leader. And there's a reconciliation. It doesn't just end with, oh, well, now I'm bought. But there ends up with a reconciliation. So if you read it that way, the question always, what does it mean in my own life? 
that's what happens. I'm struck by the fact that in this process, you are, and we've talked about this already, you're, you're listening to the text in light of your present context, your circumstances. You're also listening to the text in light of the experiences of your daughter or the experience of your non-binary grandchild who now identifies as they. I think that some who are beholden to these traditions of Christianity and Islam and Judaism, they would look at that and they would say, you're giving up the store. You're giving away everything that we have carried on for these thousands of years. How can you do this? I don't hear that in what you're doing. I don't hear that in your book, Dancing in God's Earthquake. It takes a tremendous amount of courage and trust to allow the tradition to continue to unfold in the way that I'm observing you do it in this book and in this conversation. And I'm wondering for listeners who may be, particularly at a time like this, grasping for that kind of trust, maybe they've felt their faith shaken, they don't have the courage that they once had, and maybe they're feeling like they want to cling too much onto tradition because it's the only thing that's solid for them. What would you say to encourage them to let them let go a little bit of that tight hold and to allow for this spirit, this midrash to flow and to allow them to reevaluate and to breathe new life into their traditions? Well, use the word trust. I would use the word love. That if you try to keep someone, a person whom you love, in a box, never changing, it turns out not to be love. It turns out to be domination. And if you deeply love the possibility of the person's changing, and in this case, the possibility of the text changing, changing as we live in it and through it and with it and sometimes against it, that loving uh, relationship with the text, thinking of it, sometimes I think of it even as, a, as if it's a person talking with me and expecting an answer. I love, for instance, there's a passage where the text begins in the Torah, the text begins saying, if you do what you're supposed to do, there won't be any poor people in the land. And then a paragraph later, the text says, there are always going to be poor people in the land, so do what we're telling you to do. And the two things, are this, what you do is the same thing. And I have this kind of funny notion that the Torah is saying, Look, I know some of you who are reading me are pessimists, and some of you who are reading me are optimists. So I'm telling some of you, look, they're always going to be poor. And some of you, I'm telling, hey, you could end poverty. And either way, I'm telling you this is the way to behave toward the poor and toward yourself and toward the society as a whole. But I know uh, that the Torah seems to me to be talking to me, saying, I know some of you are this way and some of you are that way, and I, I'm talking to both of you. So that's loving. That's loving the text. I hear its contradiction or seeming contradiction. I hear its unity, and I love the fact that it's ready to talk back to me. 
Well, you mentioned that you finished the manuscript for your book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, right before we really got hit with the effects of COVID-19 and with the, the lockdowns and the slowing of the economy. And you had a chance to write a foreword in the midst of this new reality that is appended to the book, but is, is not really woven through the book. And I wonder if you could share with listeners how this pause, you call it the great pause, has both amplified your thinking that was coming out of the book and maybe has shifted your thinking that has come out of the book a little bit? Well, for one thing, it said, wow, you thought you were living in an earthquake? Maybe. You didn't know from what earthquakes could really be. And we've, I think, lived through five of them in the last six months. The earthquake of the coronavirus, the earthquake of overt, I would say, fascist actions by the president of the United States, that's an earthquake. The earthquake of the first time in American history, a multiracial uprising against racism. Their uprisings have never have never been as both white and black about racism as they have been in the last six months. The death of Justice RBG, shaking people's ideas up about the whole nature of the Supreme Court. And I did talk about the court in the book and comparing it with efforts in the Torah to put boundaries on how a king should act and the failure of those boundaries. And I said, well, the Supreme Court's an attempt to do put some boundaries, but we're seeing that it's not so easy to put such boundaries. So there have been all these upheavals since just six months ago when I sent the manuscript to Orvis Books. What have I learned? I've learned both that the earthquakes are shaking us even more than I had expected, but I did expect they were coming. I've learned that the question, are we going to make it through love and not death, is a really open question. And the next months and years are going to make that decision, not only for American society, but for the earth and the human species. I've learned that you can never catch up with reality by writing a book. <laughs> I was able to get the comment in, but actually more happened even after I got the comment in. So I'm amused. Even this text needs rethinking, re-examination in the light of our own lives just six months later. So... I think in the deepest sense, it's a confirmation. And in the smaller sense, it requires rethinking, even this text. Well, Rabbi Wasco, it has been an utter delight to speak to you today. And I just want to say, as a person who studied some of these texts and some of these interpretations of these texts in graduate school, coming to your book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, was like coming home. It was a breath of fresh air. I learned so many new things reading your book, and I have just really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for taking the time to write the book, but thank you especially for taking the time to talk to me and my listeners today. Well, thank you. And let me say, shalom. And in the Jewish tradition, this is a new year, 
there's a word like Shana, which means year, Shanui, which means transformation, may be a good transformative year, not just a year like any other one, but a transformative year for all of us. And thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation, too. We've been speaking today with Rabbi Arthur Ocean Wasco. He's founder and director of the Shalom Center, a prophetic voice in American life that brings Jewish and other spiritual thought and practice to bear on seeking peace, pursuing justice, healing the earth, and celebrating community. He's taken a vigorous part in public advocacy and nonviolent protest on behalf of peace, civil rights, full equality for women and gay people, freedom for Soviet Jewry, and healing for the wounded earth. Today we've been speaking about his recent book, Dancing in God's Earthquake, the coming transformation of religion. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.